I'm glad the LBC didn't put you to sleep. We're all awake. We're ready to go. We're going to go into Romans chapter 8 this morning. Can you open up there? As we, uh, yes, I hear some cheers for Romans chapter 8. As we finish off our smaller three-section little mini-series on the the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at that he is divine and that he is a person that we should relate to him and worship him as such. We've also seen last week what his role is in our conversion, in our uh, salvation at that moment of justification and regeneration. We had a quick skim through the auto salutis and we saw those elements that the, the Holy Spirit particularly works in us. So we've seen that Christians are therefore convicted by the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel to understand their sin. We are then born again by the Holy Spirit to see Jesus Christ, who is proclaimed in the gospel, to recognize our need and place our faith in him. And therefore, we are new creatures who have been born again. And now what we're looking at today in Romans 8 is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians for sanctification. We look at uh, the, sanctify, the sanctifying reality of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and a sh- brief moment on the gifts of the Holy Spirit for service. So look at, look at verse 11 here in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> this will be our theme verse for the morning. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 reads, If the Holy Spirit, rather, let me start again. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. May God bless to us the reading and preaching of his own inerrant, inspired, powerful, authoritative word this morning. Amen. There was a a, a Scottish mother who had, uh, back in the 1800s about, had sent her oldest son, her only son, over to America to start a a bold new life in the land of opportunity. And and as as he had arrived there uh, with his medical degree, he went there and he began to work and he was very successful. So successful, in fact, that he became a a landowner and and, uh, 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 very, very wealthy. And uh, the mother back in Scotland, one of the reasons she'd sent her son off was because she was impoverished. They were, she was a widow, they were poor, they were on a small farm, and, and uh, therefore she was hoping, as any, as any mother would want, she was hoping that she would be able to glean some blessings from her son being in America. And all that she received was letters with portraits and pictures of America. Nice, touching, not quite what a widowed mother would want. In fact, the pastor of this poor widow came and visited her one day with the, with the heart of 1 Timothy uh, uh, burning inside of him. And he said, I, 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 I'm uncomfortable that your son has gone and is making for himself a great life, tells you in all of these letters how great his life is, and yet all that you receive as his family member, his mother, the one who gave life and birth to him, is letters. And coming somewhat to his defense, she said, it's not just letters, he does also send me paper, you know, portraits and pictures of important people in America and, and pictures of buildings and whatnot. And he said, this, this just doesn't seem uh, to, to be sufficient for me. Can I at least see these? And, and knowing that her son's in the wrong, but wanting to stand up for him, he, she goes and gets this little box piled up underneath her bed, filled to the brim with all of these small rectangular pieces of paper with numbers and pictures of people's faces and buildings. And what the Scottish minister was able to then tell her, in him being a little bit more aware of other nations in the world, was that she was sitting on a box full of American money. These little portraits that she'd received was not little paintings by a, by a, by a printer down the road. These were American bills that she could then exchange. She was sitting on a gold mine. Now, if you ask that lady, if you were to objectively look at that situation and say, what changed in the possessions of that lady before the minister's visit and after the minister's visit that made her rich, the answer would be nothing. She didn't gain anything that made her any richer. The only thing that changed was her own realization and therefore mindset about what she already had. And when we come into Romans 8 and we start looking at what every single born-again believer in Jesus Christ has, 
in the gift of the Spirit, it is very much like this old lady. We come in thinking we're somewhat impoverished. We, 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 we think of the Holy Spirit as, as, yeah, we get Him. And sometimes that means I feel a warm feeling in my heart and I smile and lift my hands in a song maybe. Nah, we're Reformed Baptists. I don't even get that portion of the Spirit. So what's the point? What do we get? And then to realize that we go out of here still saved as Christians, we have gained nothing except for a mind renewed by the word to realize the riches of the gift of the spirit that we have all been sleeping on. It's my prayer this morning that if you're a new believer, and I know some of you are very new, that you would understand the gift that has been given to you in the Holy Spirit. For those of us who have been walking a while and yet struggling, you would be revived with the understanding of what this enriching gift that has already been given to you is, and for those who are walking a long time with the Lord Jesus Christ, being sanctified and growing and maturing and serving, that you would then also be refilled for another week of hard service unto the Lord. So Romans 8, verse 11, there's a few things that we have to establish. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's an if-then statement. If you have the Spirit, then your body will be filled with spiritual life. The big question for anybody reading this is, how do I know if the if applies to me? Who's the you that he's talking about? If the Spirit of him, or really in in the flow of Paul's language, we could really make it a since. Since the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So who's the you? Who gets to be able to say this all, all of the great and glorious promises apply to me? Well, for an answer to that, we can go just two verses up to verse 9 and 10, where the answer will be given to us that those who have the Spirit is all and every Christian. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Pauline language of being in the flesh, meaning being unregenerated. Still in your your dead flesh, as a sinner blind to God. Being in the Spirit is language of being spiritually alive and having faith in Jesus. You are not in the flesh, but in, in the Spirit, in the realm of spiritual life, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Therefore, his logic is simply this, that anybody and everybody who has placed your faith in Jesus, therefore you have Jesus in you. If you are in Christ by faith, Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, then the Holy Spirit is in you because you're in Christ. Or another way, if you're in the spirit, The Spirit is in you. It really is precisely that simple. The uh, verse, verse 9 here tells us, anybody who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Spirit is the birthright of every adopted child of God. There is no such thing, there is no such thing as a Christian still waiting to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a Christian who belongs to Christ but doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit. So we don't expect, we don't pray for. Friends, do not go to some conference or church or service or pastor or so-called apostle because they offer the reception or the giving or the impartation of the Holy Spirit. There's one minister, priest, prophet, and king who gives the Holy Spirit, and his name is Jesus. And he gave it to you when you placed your faith in him. So we don't expect or pray for a for what might be called a a second blessing, a baptism, or a receiving of the Spirit at some point in our spiritual life after being born again or after placing our faith in Jesus. The Spirit is not given to some Christians after salvation, but every Christian at salvation. Now I can hear your thoughts. Uh, That's that's one of my gifts. And uh, uh, joking. And and some of you will think, but... But aren't the apostles our great example for the Christian life? Yes. Aren't we told, imitate them as they imitate Christ? Yes. And wasn't it their experience that they were converted, they believed on Jesus, they become his followers, received the word about him, and then at some point in their life, 
in a response to prayer, the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven and they were baptized. And isn't it a case that other times in Acts, you see Jewish believers who had called on the name of Jesus and been saved, and then the apostles come, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that how it goes down in the book of Acts? And we say partially yes, but even the way that I just explained it is technically wrong. They were not converted, entered the new covenant, and then in a response to their prayer received the Holy Spirit. No. They were converted or born again, under the old covenant, okay? Yes, Jesus was here, but the new covenant had not started. The reception of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the people of God, the new covenant people of God, would not occur until after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. That's when he sends Pentecost, uh, the, the Spirit at Pentecost. So they were converted under the Old Testament, and then as they passed within their lifetime into the era of the new covenant, the New Testament, Then Jesus gave them the blessing of the New Testament, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Jew under the old covenant before Jesus dies and rises and you get saved, only then are the apostles in this sense an example for you, which happens later on in Acts. They are told, well, you're not just to believe, but also to be baptized. There is such a thing as the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. But no, Pentecost is not a blueprint for our Christian life. The, the apostles' experience of the Holy Spirit is, not, in that sense, is not a blueprint for our, for our Christian life. What they go on to then proclaim later is this, that everybody who comes into Christ receives at that moment his Holy Spirit. It wouldn't be true to say in the Old Testament times or in, in the disciples' life, if you have not been baptized in the Spirit, you don't believe on Christ. That would be untrue. That is a new covenant blessing and promise. So we reject the whole idea, that that theology that would then produce two tiers of Christianity, the the normal ones, the boring ones, the ungifted ones who technically are going to heaven, you'll be in the Logan of heaven, and then the rest who have been baptized, who have the spirit and have the second blessing, have all of the gifts. We reject all of that. There is one type of Christian. The, 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 The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all given Different gifts, we are all used in different ways, but given the same Holy Spirit upon our salvation. Every person, therefore, as we go back to Romans 8.11 here, if the Spirit of Him dwells in you, that is true. The you is anybody in this room, anybody the world over and throughout all time who has called on the name of Jesus Christ to save them from their sin and place their faith in Him. To you, these promises apply. And we see here that uh, what the promise begins out as, the first one that we, that we get here, is that he gives life to our mortal bodies. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We see three parties aside from us Christians in this verse. The three parties are no less than the three members of the eternal Godhead. First of all, we see Jesus who was raised from the dead. Secondly, we see he who rose Jesus from the dead, that's the Father. And thirdly, we see the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. So we see this Trinitarian resurrection, this Trinitarian promise given to us in the gospel through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the promise is that God will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So through his spirit in you, God will give life to your bodies just as surely and as powerfully as he gave life to Jesus' dead body. When he says mortal body here, we're not primarily talking about the resurrection, when our dead bodies are risen up. What he is speaking about, the the mortal body that you are still in is the body that you live in. It is mortal in the sense that it will die compared to the future body you get, which will never die. It is mortal in the sense that it is still corrupted under the curse because it has the, the, the pleasure of sin, the temptation of sin, the desire for sin still in our members. That was Romans chapter 7. So yes, it is mortal. Yes, we're in a body of death and yet... That is no excuse to live a life of sinful death because Jesus is our great example and picture of hope. 
and he was dead in the grave, and yet the Spirit brought him to everlasting life. So the, 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 the argument of Paul is one from greater to lesser. No one of us can say that my body is more incapable of obeying God than Jesus' dead body in the grave. If the Holy Spirit can bring to life and glorious obedience to a dead body, then he can bring it to you in your mortal bodies. This is the great promise that Romans 8 verse 11 is telling us. This is the power of the Christian life for sanctification and service, that the Holy Spirit is empowering your body, your mind, your soul for righteous life. Therefore, righteous living in a mortal body. Religion, every religion, can be boiled down, outside of Christianity, can be boiled down to two basic hopeless promises. First of all, that you need to be good enough to reach some standard. And secondly, that you are unable to be good enough. At least where they, they, they dissect, they, they, where they meet with reality, every other religion tries to tell people two things which we know cannot be true, which is that you need to be good enough and the standard's pretty low, but in reality, the standard is in fact infinitely high. So you need to be good enough is bad news. You can never be good enough. But also, that you are powerless to be good enough, even if the standard was low. So, so in, in the world, without the gospel, you are, you are and even in a, in a Christless, gospelless, good news, empty Christianity, a legalistic Christianity, you are being told that you need to be good enough, the standards of which are infinitely high. But also, you're weak and powerless and cannot be good enough. But, but even if you just take one of them and say, no, you can be good. You have the ability, the inward power to do good obedience. Even then, you can't make your way into the pleasures of God because the standards are infinite. Or if we, we move it around and say, well, the standards aren't infinite, and you can get there, but you're powerless. You can't do it. It is a hopeless, gospelless religion. But the gospel religion of Jesus is that you are first forgiven. You are forgiven and brought into the right standing before God at the front door. You come into the Christian religion in right standing with God. You are justified at the front door, made right in his sight, and... Not only legally are you forgiven and made righteous, but then in you and to you, he makes you born again and gives you his spirit. So that this is the, the double-pronged good news of the gospel, that you are saved and forgiven and empowered against your sin. That yes, you are forgiven and saved and freed from the condemnation and curse of your sin, and you are empowered and gifted to fight against your sin. You have no condemnation and you have no powerlessness. These are the two mindsets, or these following two mindsets are the two worst enemies to your sanctification as a Christian. For the, for the newbies, the sanctification of a Christian means the process by which we are sanctified, being made more righteous before God, being more and more set apart to obedience, more and more loving, more and more holy, more and more Christ-like the process of sanctification. The two worst enemies to sanctification are the following mindsets, that you are condemned and that you are powerless. For somebody seeking to obey Jesus, wanting to be more holy because the spirit in you desires that, if you believe to a mind that is not re renewed by the word of God, that you are condemned. I am condemned before God. There is some sin against me between myself and God's justice that kindles his wrath. I am condemned or I am powerless. I am weak and hopeless against the strength of my mortal body and the sins therein. Those two things, if you believe them, then you have lost the battle already before it even starts. Even if you lose one of them, you still remain in a, in a, as far as your sanctification goes, a hopeless state. If you're a Christian who believes, hold fast unto the five souls. I am justified in God's sight, but I'm hopelessly powerless against sin. Your life will be depressing, 
hopeless, walking in darkness, without the joy that obedience brings, or if you believe that I am able to obey, I have the Holy Spirit, but I am unsure whether or not I am condemned or justified before God, then you have lost the fuel that inspires your obedience, which is the knowledge that you were already made right. Therefore, we need both of them. We need the mindset that says, I have no condemnation and I have no powerlessness. And both of those are in the first 10 verses of Romans 8, which we've uh, skipped to go to verse 11. So go back with me, your Bible, to Romans 8, chapter, uh, sorry, Romans 8, verse 1. The two promises you need to know in the gospel is that you are justified and you are made powerful against temptation. That you are justified is, is told to us in verses 1 to 3. That you are powerful is verse 4 to 10. Look at Romans 1 to 3. Romans 8, verse 1 to 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll pause for an amen, hallelujah. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. See, the problem with the, the law of God is not that it was evil or that it was wrong. The problem with the law of God is just that it was insufficient. Perfect, but insufficient. Perfect in God's, in God's eyes, a perfect revelation of God's righteousness. The reason it couldn't save us is not because there was something wrong with it, but simply meeting with it, we were the problem. We were weakened by flesh, and the law commanded a perfect obedience that we couldn't bring. So the law was not weakened by God's own weakness. The law was weakened by its partner, us. It was weakened by our flesh. And so God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God had to remove the one element of the equation that was messing everything else up. The law had been given, obey perfectly. Humans fallen came up to the law and would fail every time. So God needed to remove those from the equation who were trying to earn our own salvation, remove us from the equation and substitute in one like us, a human in the flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin. So that now there is a perfect human, not weakened by flesh, able to fulfill the law which he did, earning for us a righteousness before the law of God. And further, God then condemned our sin in his flesh, that is, in his person. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. He became guilty with our sin, though himself perfect in his own standing. Jesus was condemned under the wrath of God so that now all of our sins have been punished. We are then without sin in God's eyes and to us is given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the glorious and great exchange of the gospel. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness and he resurrects back into eternal life. So, first of all, where we are fearful, where we are unsure, where we are unaware of where, where we stand with God, we see here, if we are in Christ, then we are made righteous because, yes, you're weak, but Jesus did what we, weakened by flesh, could not do. While we were weak, Christ Jesus died for us at the right time. What the law could not do, Jesus did. God did in his son. That's verse 1 to 3. You are not condemned. Verse 4 to 10 will tell us that we are not powerless. So God justified us in his sight. Look at verse 4. God justified us in his sight through his son in the cross in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who walk according to the spirit, sorry, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a a summary of both parts. For your justification in your own flesh, you are powerless, therefore condemned. Jesus had to obey and die for you. But even after the fact, if he did die for you, outside of you, and yet left you unchanged if you were still in the flesh but uncondemned, you would be unable to live a righteous life because the mind that is still in the flesh is set on the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the flesh is to be at enmity with God. So here's the second part of the good news of the promise in Romans 8. Verse 10, sorry, verse 9. You are therefore... On the back of all that, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 1 to 3 told us you are not condemned by calling on Jesus to save you. You are made righteous. Verse 4 through 10 tells us, and you are no longer powerless. There is no excuse for the Christian to consider himself or herself against sin and the body of flesh as hopeless. There is no excuse to be able to say, well, God, this body is, it's a body of sin. This body is a mortal body. He already grants that. He says, the mortal body will be given life. He says, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is an immutable promise through the apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit, speaking the words of Jesus from the eternal father to everybody who has placed their faith in Jesus. The spirit will bring life to those who are having faith in Jesus Christ. So in one sense, the good news of the gospel is that you escape the law. The law was after you. The law had held you fast. The law had condemned you, had whipped you, and had you on death row before judgment day. And the good news of Jesus is because he died for you and in our place, you get to escape the law. The chains are broken. You flee. It can't chase you. It's not allowed to chase you. You can't be condemned by it. And then the other part of the gospel promise is that you bump into the law out in the the hallway of the courthouse And now he's your best friend because he helps you obey Jesus. You actually have the spirit-given regeneration and the spirit-given power to obey what he says. In other words, for a Christian, obedience to the commands of God are not far off from us. Just as Moses said to the Israelites in the old covenant, we can reuse his language in the new covenant. Do not use the excuse towards our God and say, your commandments are so far off from us. You made them so high and lofty, unable to attain. They are away from us. They're outside of our reach. To that, God says, no, it is in your heart. It is among us. It is in your very mouth. All that you must do is to accept the promises here. The dollar bills are under your bed. You're sleeping on them, tying them up, not accessing them. That is where we realize the gospel meets us in our claims to powerlessness. In fact, even in Ezekiel chapter 36, which we looked at last week, looking forward to the the promise of regeneration, speaking of the new covenant, even Ezekiel says, not just that regeneration is a part of the new covenant, but also that sanctification and obedience is a part of the new covenant. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27 and 28 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There's regeneration. Does he stop there? Absolutely not. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will cause us to obey his rules and remain in his statutes. Sanctification is part of God's promise in the gospel. Don't ever think that sanctification is one of the prerequisites to get in the gospel. Being made holy is not even a condition to remain in the gospel. 
Your sanctification is not a condition that God holds up before you. And if it falls in its, in its degrees enough, then he will kick you out. Your sanctification is not a condition to staying in the covenant of Jesus. Your sanctification is part of the promise that Jesus gives to you that he will do in you. He will make his people obedient from the heart. He will make us, cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. So we insult, friends. We insult the Spirit. We insult the one raised by the Spirit. We insult the one who raised Jesus by his Spirit. We insult the triune God of salvation when we say, I am powerless against this sin. There are people here who have secret sins. Your wife doesn't know about it. Your children don't know about it. Your husband don't know about it. Your best friends are far off from the knowledge of the things that you allow yourself to commit, whether it be pornography, fornication, gossip, bitterness, laziness, the fear of man and cowardiceness, the harshness towards your wife or disrespect towards your husband. To, to speak of any of that as something we just can't get rid of in this life. I'm powerless against this. I'm, I'm a prisoner in a cell in this Christian life, and I know that when I die, I'll go to heaven and be freed and the chains will fall off. But until then, I'm just bound up, unavoidably committing this sin. That is to speak wrongly of and insultingly of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that were true of you, if there were even some sins that you were unable to be freed from in this life, then Jesus would still be just a little bit dead in the grave. If he is alive, he will give life to our mortal bodies by the power of his spirit. You are not powerless. He gives life to your mortal body. And therefore, the mindset for sanctification needs to be twofold. Every morning we wake up, every time that the afflicting, condemning, accusing thoughts come from others or ourselves, often and most often it's internally, every time we doubt what God has said of us in the gospel, we need the, the double-pronged mindset of God sees no sin in my account, he has no wrath against me, and God has given me everything I need to live an obedient life in Jesus Christ. To which we have to start asking the question, or anybody listening up to this point would ask the question, why do I sin so much then? What's up with me? If that's the promise, make sense of my life. Why is my indwelling sin running so wild? Why am, am, am I supposed to just immediately conclude now that being so unsanctified, I must be out of the covenant? I must be unsaved. Everything I've experienced of the good news of Jesus must be total, a total farce and I must be self-deceived. That's possible. Not at all your first conclusion. The mother in Scotland being told that she has nothing in her bank account, realizing she can't apply for a loan, she can't buy another bag of potatoes or haggis, whatever, 1800 Scotland. Her being told that, she should not conclude, I therefore have no money. In her situation, the answer was run home, lay hold of what is true, and then you will see what is different. So therefore, first of all, in answer to the question, if this is all true, if an immutable fact is, as surely as Jesus is raised, the Spirit will give life to my body in the Christian life, what may, then what of my life? Why so much sin? The first answer is mindset. Like the mother laying on her bed of poverty, assuming she has nothing to feed herself tomorrow, she just doesn't realize that underneath her feet on the floor of her bedroom is great riches. Mindset is so Im immensely important in the Christian life. To change your mindset about something can change nothing outside of you. To change your mindset can change nothing inside of you except an entire new view and vision of your entire situation in life. 
And so it is, just like the mother in Scotland, to have the realization of what Paul just promised in Romans 8, because I know we've read Romans 8 before. I know you read it in your reading plan. I know you've gone through it before. But probably what happened when you read it, skimming through or read it in a group, you probably thought that's what it sounded like. What I've just told you it means, you've probably thought, that sounds awesome. And immediately thought, must not be what it means. Doesn't match up with experience. Probably too good to be true. We should probably come back and exegete that with a more realistic commentary, which will tell me that the gospel is not that good. But I'm telling you, that really is what the Holy Spirit is promising to us, that he can and will bring life to our mortal bodies. So therefore, the first reason as to why there is so much weakness in your Christian life, why there is so much sin growing and living unmortified and so powerful is simply because you didn't realize you were able to kill it. There is a story that I remember hearing on a true crime podcast. I'm, I don't usually do that, but this one episode. I'm just not that guy. If you watch true crime, I, I don't like you much, but I'll make an effort. Uh, it's a type of person, you know. I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that type. I listened to one episode, and there was a story of a woman in America, 60s, 70s, 80s, something like that, who had been, who had been kidnapped and kept in a basement in a coffin-sized box, fed through a, through a small gap, and, and her life was filled with suffering, therefore, obviously. It was years. In fact, it was almost a decade that she had been missing from her family. No one was able to find her before the, before the, the glorious sciences of all of the forensic studies, and there she stayed, and she was suffering immensely and horribly. And one day, her captor came to her and told her that she's actually allowed to leave the house. She's allowed to go free. Conditioned. Conditioned on one thing. You see, he had, he had so worn down her mind, so broken her capacity to, to think and reason and, 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 and acknowledge r- real truth that he was simply able quite easily to convince her with a, a falsified document that in the, this, the law, according to the laws of the state that they lived in, he'd actually acquired her as his possession and that were she to run, she would be held by authorities, punished and brought back. That were she to go back to her parents and they take her, they were liable to the death penalty. And so she, on the freest day of her life in 10 years, being able to walk out the front door after having her first shower in so long, was actually no freer than the day before. She was more captive than she had ever been. So for months, she was going and doing grocery shopping for him, getting his car serviced, going out, taking part in life, seeing friends or family and kind of avoiding them so that she doesn't have the awkward conversation, I I belong to this guy now, that's where I've been for the last 10 years. She lived life that way because she so truly believed that she was owned. And all that it took was bumping into one of those nosy friends, you don't like bumping into at the shop, who run down the aisle to say hello, don't do the polite thing and pretend they don't see her. They run down, they grab her and say, I haven't seen you in so long. Oh, oh, where have you been? And, and she, she's awkward and, and holding back the real truth of the matter. But this nosy friend just brings her to a confession and says, look, I can't come home. I know my parents want to see me. It's just not doable. I belong to this man. And she produced the paperwork. And her friend was simply able to tell her that this is entirely falsified dominion. This man has no legal rights over you. This is entirely made up so as to keep her mentally bound that she would then be physically bound or that she would rather, being mentally bound, physically bind herself so that every day she would walk back to the place of abuse, she would walk back to the place of dominion and domination, she would walk back to the place of suffering, believing that she had no right to walk away so that the mental chains around her were thicker and stronger than any that she had ever been physically tied up with. And this is the reality of the Christian. So often, being freed by Jesus, being raised by Jesus, being infilled by his spirit, being promised power, we have believed through poor preaching, maybe, our own condemnation, of course, the accusation of the devil, and and a simple lack of awareness of the richness of the gospel are like this lady returning continually to the basement of our addictions and our sins, believing that because I'm in the body of death, I can have no life. 
And I hope that this morning I can be like this friend to grab you in the shopping market to tell you if you are in this body yet believing in Jesus, there is real life available. This, this sin, Romans 6 will say, that did truly once have dominion over you has in fact been defeated by the resurrection power that is in you through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it doesn't have the dominion you think it does. Just try it. Walk free, see what he can do. And the Christian life is one of realizing this more and more, that we realize I'm walking free. I actually am not being bound by sin as I once thought I was. So the first answer, why is sin reigning in your life so much? Because you're voluntarily giving it the throne under the wrong mindset. It is simply a matter of mindset. And secondly, it's a matter of time and effort. As far as sanctification goes in the Christian life, it's actually sometimes really good news to realize it is quite simple. We overcomplicate it immensely. We add in pop psychology. We add in whatever else we hear. We, we, we add in a disbelief of the gospel promises. We complicate it. It really actually is growing in Christ is quite simple. Not easy. Friends, not easy, but simple. If you give yourself over to remembering God's promises in the gospel, daily reminding yourself, I am not condemned and I am not powerless in Jesus Christ, and you draw near to him through word, prayer, fellowship, church, you cannot fail to grow. To think that you will fail to grow doing that is to make God the liar. It really is that simple. And therefore, I need to ask the question, are you making an effort towards those things? An effort towards the word? A striving for the word? A, a sacrificing in prayer? A, a putting forth, not, not, not just listening to, to when you feel like it, but striving, a, an effort that comes through prayer? A, a deal of, of, of intentionality to be at church with your uh, fellow believers and under the word of God. An intentionality about fellowship. If you have those things, you cannot fail to grow because that's the promise of Romans 8 verse 11. And then if you say, Pastor, I'm doing this. I believe those promises. I'm striving towards these means that bring about such righteousness in my life. And the simple answer is give it Time. Give it time. Mindset, effort, and time is the secret to sanctification. And then we could ask, what does sanctification look like from Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit and Romans 12 and service? But being late in the message, we will go briefly. So go Galatians 5. <clears throat> what we are told in Galatians is that Naturally, naturally, our unregenerated heart in our being, the body of death without the spirit, it is like a, a garden. It is like a soil in which weeds and sinfulness naturally grow. But upon conversion, the Holy Spirit is given so that he enters the garden. He does a great deal of weed and feeding and fertilizing and, and chopping so that you have, yes, the ongoing ability and possibility to still grow weeds out of this body of death, and yet the greater and stronger power to be able to both kill those weeds and plant righteous seeds unto obedience. And this is shown for us in the language of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. First we'll see the, the fruit of the flesh, which naturally grows up out of the human heart, both the unconverted and the converted Christian who is not doing intentional work towards their sanctification, and they are as follows. Verse 19 of chapter 5 in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity and strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In this body of flesh, is there still the possible soil in us that, that can bring forth those things? Yes. 
but the Christian is marked by uprooting those weeds so that we cannot say that we are those who do such things. Or if we do them, they are repented of. They're confessed and they're mortified. But we are not classified as somebody who does these things. That is the difference of the Christian. No, we are not without the ability to sin, but we are now given the ability to not sin. And therefore, verse 22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit that come. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will bring about sanctification that looks like those fruit in the life of all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And we will leave Romans 12 on its own as we come to a conclusion. Rather, what we also would see is that God, by his Spirit, gives us gifts, gives us abilities, gives us weaponry for his kingdom, so that in serving him we might see others saved, the church built, the kingdom expanded for the glory of our great resurrected and unruling King, Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, in the gospel, every single Christian is made righteous before God in justification and made able to live righteously by the Spirit, made able to live righteously by the Spirit, which is sanctification. There is no such thing as a Christian powerless against sin. Also in the gospel, every Christian is given the spirit who will bring his fruit into our character. So there is no such thing as a Christian living unchanged, bearing the fruit of the flesh. And then thirdly, in the gospel, every Christian is gifted in a particular way to serve Jesus in the church. There is no such thing as a sideline Christian who has no capacity to build the kingdom. And if there is anyone in the room today, it's incumbent on me to ask you, are you in Jesus Christ? Have you received the good news of the gospel that Jesus died for your sin and makes you righteous? And if you have not, you may be asking the questions, maybe considering you're, you're a child of a Christian family or you're a friend of somebody come in today or, or you've been somewhat regular but realize you are not in Jesus. None of this makes sense in your life or soul. And you ask, well, can I, can I not be gifted for service? Am I entirely ungifted? Just, I'm, I'm at church. I do Christian things. I, I give it a try. Am I truly to be insulted that I'm entirely ungifted? Yes. Yes, it would be unrighteous and unfitting that God would give his sweet gifts to you, an enemy. Are you just a pile of weeds? Are you a garden that is growing nothing but sinful weeds that need to be uprooted entirely? Is, is that what I'm saying of you? Yes, absolutely. You have no capacity whatsoever to ever produce so much as a flower, let alone a fruit that God is pleased with. For you are in the flesh, with your mind set on the flesh. And if that is true, you cannot please God. You are unable to obey his law. You are unable to claim any such thing as a life source coming from the Spirit. Am I saying that you are entirely unrighteous, sinful in every one of your thoughts and beliefs and acts and motives? You already know that by taking a look at your life. You already know that if you were to lay out the particulars of all of your thoughts, all of your motives, all of your days, your dreams, your plans, your conversations, what you watch and what you, you look at, you know by laying all those out that they are nothing but sin, unrighteousness. And there are some sins that are out in the open and that you identify with or that you, you try and make seem natural and there are other sins which you hide in a secret and there are some sins which you, you take a lot of pleasure in and have a little bit of guilt after. There are other sins which you despise and are in fact almost purely uh, a, a, a displeasure to you, and yet you find yourself bound to them with chains you cannot break. I don't need to convince you that you are a sinner, unrighteous, and condemned before God. Your heart knows that 
I will not withhold from saying that, but it need not be proven. You have one need, and his name is Jesus Christ. You must believe that in love, God sent him to do what you could never do. He sent him to do which a list of rules could never be enough for. He sent him to die in your place for your sin so that you can now be considered righteous in Jesus, alive in Jesus, filled with his spirit of love, and Jesus will bring you to himself when he comes back or when you die. That is the good news of the gospel. You must believe it or perish. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we thank you for your love which poured out to this sinful race, your Son, who came as one of us, lived in the likeness of sinful flesh but without sin, and gave himself up for sin in our place. We thank you, Father, for the most glorious, infinitely gracious, amazing work that you have done through Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, that your word, empowered by your Holy Spirit, would purify our minds and hearts this morning for Jesus Christ. Because we have believed some of those things objectively. Some of us have believed those things in part and not entirely, and yet it is the work of your spirit to bring to our hearts the subjective and real experiential belief of those things so that we know, we know that as sure as God exists, we know that surer than the fact that we exist, we know as sure as the fact that Jesus is alive, I am not condemned and I am not powerless. Father God, I pray that those who have unrepentant, continual and habitual sin would not make excuse, would not flee from you, but draw near to the throne of grace in their time of need, and that they would understand and be rebuked by the simple, glorious power of the gospel, that they have been forgiven at the front door, and they have been empowered. Father God, I pray that sin would lose its grip, or rather that we would lose our grip over sin, that we would see and behold and love Jesus all the more that we are enabled to pursue him. I pray for those who are unsaved in this room lastly, that those who do not know Jesus as their savior. But, but in this, the preaching of your word, I've realized they only know Jesus as their judge. They only know him as a good example outside of them. They have not received his benefits. They have not been justified in him. Father God, I pray that you would give to their mortal bodies and dead spirits, a living spirit, your spirit, new life, so that they can believe on Jesus. And having believed in him, be given new life in their bodies for the rest of their life so that they with us can live in obedience, glorifying Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, amen.